Thanks for joining us. Welcome to the Archbridge Institute podcast. Uh, this is our first ever podcast. Uh, this is a project of the Archbridge Institute. We are a nonprofit think tank uh, based in Washington, D.C. My name is Ben Wilterdink. I am the director of programs and I'm joined by Gonzalo Schwartz, the president and CEO and founder of the Archbridge Institute. So Gonzalo, thanks for joining me uh, for today's discussion. Great to be here, Ben. Great to be here. It's exciting stuff. So we're going to be doing these podcasts probably weekly. Uh, we'll feature some different scholars, some of the people that work with us, and uh, you can check out more of our work at archbridgeinstitute.org. Uh, but please like, subscribe, leave a comment, leave uh, any sort of feedback, criticism, um, you know, any sort of things that you'd like to see. We'd love to hear from you. So just let us know. So to kick us off for today, Gonzalo, uh, we, we each brought a few topics that we wanted to talk about. Uh, related to economic mobility and the American dream and human flourishing. So one of the things that you brought up is the American dream itself. So why don't you tell us why why that's so important for you and why that's been so animating to the Archbridge Institute? That's a great topic that I like to talk about or I like to basically live in, in some sense. So for me, at least human flourishing, the American dream is one of the best examples of that. And uh, one of the best definitions of it is uh, it's a land where people seek to live better, better, richer, and fuller lives. And that, for me, it's a great definition also for what could be human flourishing, that we're seeking uh, different things. And personally, it's animating because the Archbridge Institute itself is sort of my American dream, what I've always uh, uh, wanted to focus on since I started sort of my undergraduate studies or even before that is to uh, help eradicate poverty or just figure out how we can have more social mobility, both in whatever country I was living in and around the world. And I've lived in a few countries before coming to the United States. And when I saw what the American dream represented in, in sort of in the flesh, I thought that one of the best ways to focus on social mobility, um, trying to eradicate poverty and to work on some of these issues is to talk about more about the American dream because it's precisely that better, richer and fuller lives. So, that's a it's a great topic near and dear to my heart and what I'm trying to sort of uh, do now, obviously. Do you think that the way you have phrased the American dream or you're thinking about it is different than the mainstream? Or do you think that you're kind of in line with how most of our peers might think about it? I think uh, it's mostly aligned. Uh, the problem is that now in the mainstream or if we're going into sort of academic um, academic or policy debates, it's the American dream is mostly defined uh, as income mobility if we're able to or sort of surpass the, our parents' income as adults at the same age. So right. we take mostly in academic or policy discussions only that measure. Just to be clear, that's absolute intergenerational economic mobility. Yes, yes, to right. get technical for sure. And the idea is that also, well, on, on the other side, in a more cultural narrative kind of way, it. it it relates to that in the sense that it has been it's been mostly a, 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 a cartoon version of the American dream. What we see now is talking about in terms of owning a house or owning a car or something like that in, in, in the sense of, of it being something that's more only in the richer part of that definition, only in a, in a, in a material kind of way. But I think overall and what we've seen in some uh, polls and, and other things that we saw other people publish or that we're hopefully going to publish very soon is that it's it's more than that and i think it goes to that part of the definition people trying to seek seeking to live better and fuller lives as well so it's a more encompassing definition that if we go outside maybe of some policy academic narrative that we if we ask people on the street they're related to that related to to freedom uh, of choosing how we want to live of making contributions to society having a good family life all of those things are outside the typical definition that we see now in academic and policy right. circles. But I think that most people share what I'm, what I'm saying, not because I'm right, because I didn't come up with that definition, but that's what I've seen in American life. And, and right. if you go outside and survey, that's what most people think as well. Let's get into that a little bit. By the time that mm -hmm. we are publishing this on, um, you know, as a podcast or as a YouTube video, we will have released the report that you've been working on for the American Dream uh, snapshot. So that survey. Mm -hmm. Uh, that you've been working on. So can you describe some of the results of that a little bit and kind of just explain what that is? And, and we'll make sure to leave a, a link to that uh, wherever wherever people are watching this or listening to it. 
Sure, sure. Well, the main thing is that, well, we, in terms of the measurement of the American dream, in terms of seeing if we have absolute inter, uh, intergenerational income mobility, uh, there is there is some data that, that sort of says that it's either being declined by some scholars like Rashetti. We've published right. something uh, with Scott Winship that is that it says that the figure is not as bad that American Dream hasn't been in decline, but it's sort of focusing on that. But what we what we try to do with this snapshot is just basically to ask the question: If you think the American Dream is achievable, and if you either if you have a, either achieved it are on your way of achieving it, or if you think it's not achievable at all for you as a, as a person. So that's sort of, we, we led with that question because despite whatever academic or policy uh, definition or, or number you come up with, it's just, do you feel it? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a national ethos, it's a national vision, I, I would think. So it, it sometimes it's much more subjective than we would just want to just define it with one number. And what we found there, at least with that question, is that the majority of people think that they're either achieved it or on their way of achieving it. So that's um, so that's interesting because most people now would say that that no, it's out of reach. That we have so many problems, there's so many barriers, and I, right. and that's a, I think another discussion. But despite that, whatever barriers there may still be, uh, most people think that they're on their way of achieving it. And then we ask that question that I mentioned a little, sort of that alluded to before, in terms of what is an American dream for you? How do you define it? What what do you think is most essential for the American dream? And and the first thing that most people sort of what received the most essential sort of um, voting or, or responses was freedom, to, uh, freedom of choice on how we want to live, what we want to do. So that's so that's one component of it. Right. Then uh, family life. You need some some material wealth. Yeah, to be able to sure. achieve that. For sure, but it's not the end goal in and right. of itself. Right. Like what some people would say, no, it's all about that. And then other other aspects were um, if you. Uh, if you want to, if you make uh, a significant, significant contribution to society, you want to retire comfortably, different different things. But I think the the first two were freedom of choice and having a good family life, which is also, I mean, right. obviously you need uh, some wealth to to raise a family. And obviously, right. I have two kids, so I definitely know know about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So definitely, it it is costly, but the but it's not referring to cost in this case. And the the idea is that. When it's when we when we care, when we talk about the, the the American dream, as I said, it's being caricatured as as a pursuit of wealth, as a pursuit of income or a house. And when asking that question, like the what people thought, so when when asked if becoming wealthy was essential for you, or just important but not essential, or not essential at all, only thirteen percent of people said that it, that it was very essential for the American dream to become wealthy. And earning a car or a house was also like in the bottom spots, basically. So it okay. wasn't about material wealth, and so that's one way of, of looking at it. If it's defined, uh, I mean, how people define it, right? So right. then we ask also uh, because the American dream itself in the United States, it's all about it, uh, it's all about uh, if we have if we have more opportunities to pursue some of these goals. So opportunity, obviously, very much associated with the American dream. And just associated with uh, with the United States in general, more most people uh, who emigrate here, like me, are looking for more opportunities that we didn't have back home. Um, so when we ask that question of people, if if they're if they have either achieved, I mean, sorry, if they think they have more opportunities than their parents, most people said that they did. Uh, either have either more opportunities or the same amount of opportunities, but very few said that they had less opportunities than their parents had. So. Right. So there, there is progress in that sense. And when we ask, what do you think that your children will have? Will they have more opportunities about the same or less? Most people, again, answered more opportunities or about the same. And, and the idea there is, is that obviously the American dream and a lot of the discussions that we see now in terms of, um, well, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of many different issues that make the country very polarized, uh, a big, sort of takeaway there is that people think the American dream is not alive, that there's not a lot of opportunities, that things haven't improved that much. And I think survey after survey, we asked this in this in this opportunity, but in the previous surveys as well, people have said that there are more opportunities. So yeah. Um and in and in this case and it was especially especially blacks said that there were more opportunities. So there's things a lot of things that we need to improve, a lot of more barriers that we need to remove. American dream. The American dream itself is a is a pursuit of those goals, better, richer, fuller lives. It's not an assurance. It's right. a vision statement in a way for the United States. So yeah. it's so once if people feel that there's more opportunities as time as time as time goes by, that's 
but we should aim for more. So in that case, there are more opportunities. Um, and I think that would that would be basically it for now. We had other couple of other questions that if you, you can remind me of I'm forgetting, that would be key for that for this particular part. But no, I, I think that covers like the the key takeaways. I mean, what I remember when we got the survey results back, I was struck by, you know, I guess I wasn't too surprised at these results because they are sort of in line with some of the other surveys that have come out from Pew or the American Enterprise Institute uh, mm -hmm. in the past few years. But they're so at odds with what we hear a lot. I mean, you know, Raj Shetty and uh, and his his team at uh, I think it's Opportunity Insights, um, yes. I believe, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, they've they've done a lot of this research a few years back. Uh, you know, they had that really really thorough, wide ranging report that basically uh, looked used census data to look at whether the generation that was born in the '80s was doing better or worse than their parents. Um, mm. And uh, they basically came out and said that. And this is a relative mobility measure, so it's not quite what mm -hmm. we've been talking about. But they said that roughly 50% of the people are doing better and 50% are doing worse. And all you, you remember at the time, all the headlines in the New York Times were, you know, the American dream is dead, or at least it's on life support or something like that. And mm -hmm. that that's a really different perspective than we're hearing uh, from people as they're answering these survey questions, like as they're mm -hmm. as they're actually communicating they don't think that it's dead, um, which is yeah. um, which I think is interesting that there's such a broad gap between sort of the academic picture and what people experience, or at least what people say they experience. Um, so I don't know, maybe part of me thinks that maybe that that leads us to say that maybe the academic folks, you know, to some extent like us are looking in the wrong place, uh, you know, mm -hmm. where we're looking, where we're kind of using economic mobility as a stand-in for the American dream, mm -hmm. but it's so out of sync with what people's personal views of it are. I don't know how useful it is uh, for us to keep mm -hmm. using that measure. Although the mm -hmm. alternative, I don't know what an alternative would be because like you can't yeah, really measure. It's very tricky. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, you can do it by survey, which we've done, mm -hmm. but you know, there's not really an objective way to measure a person's, you know, mm -hmm. if they feel like they have a good family life or if they, uh, you know, there's not really good objective measurements for like, oh, I'm, I'm fulfilling my potential. Like that's, that's something they can say, but it's not, mm -hmm. you can't find that in a statistic somewhere. Uh, so yeah. I think, I think that is a challenge for, for people who are looking into the American dream trying to assess it. So maybe it's just good to have all of these data points in there. Yeah, no, it's definitely, and it's definitely part of it. And well, there's a few other issues there as well. So I think in terms of the, the technical aspects. Uh, I think, uh, first of all, stepping back what we said before, it's sort of maybe measure, measuring just the richer part of, of the of the American dream. So that's right. just part of it. Obviously, it allows you if you have more income to pursue other goals, and so that's so that's valid. Um, but but it's also how how it's being measured. So as I mentioned, like Scott Winship had a different sort of a, a, a different number for the generation born in the nineteen uh, eighties. And I think it was, yeah, well, anyhow, but it was, uh, the measurement was, was how much, how many kids surpassed their parents' income as adults. So it was 50% yeah. for that generation. And it was 90% for the generation born, born in the 1940s. So there's a whole other technical discussion there if we're starting in the 1940s. Yeah. If it's really valid to say when, well, those kids are born to parents who were starting very low, right in the bottom of the income distribution or very... Right. It's easier to climb. <laughs> easier to climb when you're coming out of a depression and things have been, uh, for them, have been very good later in terms of economic growth and business and labor markets in the 50s, 60s, even obviously late 40s after after the Second World War. So it's it's complicated in, in that sense. Right. But also it's also measuring, uh, it's also surpassing your parents' income. So it's so, so that in a technical way, that's intergenerational. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's measuring between 32 and 40 years in most studies, sort of the, that's the range. But maybe some people take more to surpass the parents' income. I don't know, but that's sort of you, 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 you take an average of those years. So there's a discussion there. Maybe, well, year when you're 41, when they're 42, maybe they're, oh, okay, they're the surpassed. This was just a few years. But there's some technical things there. And it's also interesting or important to highlight if, if people end up surpassing their own income, sort of intra-generational mobility, if they're, right. if they're better, um, sort of better in their own lives or growing and all and, and all that in terms of income so that's so, so that's part of it but 
the other part is, is yeah, the other thing is just applies to, to that conversation and the, and the material part of it, the richer component. Better and fuller is something different. As you said, it's difficult to, to assess that. But in that sense, that's what makes the American dream what it is. It's, a, it's an ethos. It's a vision. It's not something that can be quantified, but the cultural narratives about it, uh, sort of how, uh, people talking more about it in positive terms encourages others to do it. And it, it might be that a lot of these people who have not surpassed the parents' income, that they're in that category of people who said that uh, who who are not saying that they've achieved their American dream, but are on their way to achieve it. So maybe they'll do it at some point. And at the end of the day, maybe it's not the it's not the goal at all for them. To just I want to do better than my parents who have income. No, maybe I want to pursue other opportunities to work in some things that maybe don't pay as much, but provide me more of a satisfaction in life and flourishing when it relates to a different profession that maybe pays less, but it's more rewarding in personal terms. So it's a lot of subjective yeah. things that are difficult, tricky to measure. But I think you have to have a little bit of both, having have the technical aspect to measure some pro the progress in terms of income mobility and the and there's obviously different issues that we can uh, that people who are um, better in terms of crunching those numbers like Raj, Chetty, like Scott Winship and others can can talk about. But we also need to have that components and that could be surveys, that could be other stuff that, as you said, we don't really know exactly. But right. But that's why the American dream, human flourishing itself and social mobility is, is more of a holistic conversation that's now has been yeah. just pinpointed in just one specific measure that it's difficult to uh to assess in that sense, but we need to broaden the conversation. I think that that's what we're trying to do with the Institute, trying to look into a lot of other aspects and a lot of different uh, type of barriers. Right. Yeah. And I, th I think that's really important. And I should have highlighted that as well. You know, there's even, even when you do come to sort of these more academic measures, there's a lot of discrepancy. There's a lot of different choices you can make as, as someone looking into that. And if anyone's really interested in that, um, Scott Winship, who is now he's the, uh, what he's the director of poverty studies at the American Enterprise Institute, I think, so, yeah. I think recently. Mm -hmm. um, but he he had put together uh, a report for us a couple years ago. Well, he's done several, but uh, he's put he, he's put together this multi-volume primer on economic mobility. So anybody who's really interested in more of the technical side of it and the measurement mm -hmm. and the trade-off and how you know benefits and pros and cons to different ways of assessing it, uh, you can find an extremely thorough uh, discussion of that on our on our website. So yeah, cool. I think uh, I think I want to move on to our to our next topic, uh, as important as the American mm -hmm. Dream is, and that animates a lot of what we're doing, of course. Um, but the next topic I had was to think about schools. Obviously, we're still in the mm -hmm. middle of the pandemic. Uh, it's you know we're recording this in October, and a lot of schools are still either fully remote or not, um, or partially remote. Uh, I guess mm -hmm. depending on where you're living in the country and. Obviously, that has a huge impact on economic mobility and, and mm -hmm. you know, people's ability to gain the human capital and the skills that they need to be successful, both in education, but also later in life. Uh, so a lot of these lockdowns um, are, are going to have lasting effects, I think it's fair to say. Uh, and then there's also, you know, that's just, you know, maybe K-12, but, um, you know, the pandemic has also sort of upended the way we think about higher education as well with so mm -hmm. many schools going, uh, going virtual and a lot of students just deciding, you know, maybe this isn't, maybe this isn't worth it, or at least it's not worth the same amount of, of investment as uh, as an in-person mm -hmm. school would be. So, so let's talk a little bit about that. Like, how do you see uh, the ongoing issues with schools and going remote uh, affecting economic mobility uh, and people's uh, ability to achieve that kind of success. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to sort of to push it back to you later for the higher education uh, component. And I have a couple of things that I want you to talk about because you had a, a great piece on that. Uh, but in terms of, I think maybe K twelve. Well, first of all, I'm having a first hand experience on, on that with trying to uh, online school basically our nine and six year old, and and it's um, it's definitely. And this is the first time. This you you weren't homeschooling before, right? No, no, I wasn't homeschooling before. So they okay. go to a public school here where we live in, in Virginia, and uh, yeah, we've been like since March. It was started online, finished school year in June. We started back in early September, and now they'll I, supposedly two days a week. We're going to start in November, and uh, but with the option to start during the second sort of during the second quarter, you can send them 
Uh, so, so you have a choice. You can send them in the second quarter twice a day or just still doing online schooling. Uh, so we decided just to not risk it, at least uh, for those, those two first quarters to keep them at home and just continue to do online schooling until the end of January. That I think is the next period where you need to decide later after January what you want to do. So it is it is quite tricky. And obviously everyone is going to uh, complain about not being able to work while you're having two kids at school, uh, at home. And right. luckily, my wife and I can can work from home. So that's not a that's not a privilege that a lot of people have. Um, so then some people have, I mean, do need to go, uh, to go outside and, and continue working if they're essential workers and they need to, to either figure out what they do, obviously with the kids, either send them to a daycare or just have a, uh, have a, have a the grandparents or someone else stay with the kids at home. So we have that privilege. Um, but I think in that sense, it, it definitely, it's in, impactful there when I'm not going to go into like how, I mean, what are the a lot of the problems that could happen with with online schooling? If it's a better method or not? I mean, a lot of I think even teachers prefer to be it in person. Obviously, the pandemic is not allowing us to do it. We- well, it depends. It depends. I mean, there's definitely there are definitely some teachers who have said we're not we're not doing it. We're not going back. Yeah, we're not going back. And there's obviously I think that's something you can speak about later. And I think you mentioned that there's a, a nice article by Jonathan. Chide, I think it was in the New Yorker talking about that and, and unions yeah. and all that. And, um, but it, it's just, I mean, everyone in a way, parents, teachers are, are, are overwhelmed with the, with the online schooling because it's not easy for anyone. And it's what I've seen, at least with, with our, our kids, teachers is that, I mean, it's very difficult to keep 20 something kids on a zoom call focused for like 45 yeah. minutes at a time. Yeah. Especially if they're young. Yeah, exactly. So I definitely, so our six year old, our first grade uh, teacher for our six year old, she's amazing. I don't know how she's able to do it, but they're there staying still paying attention, being able to mute unmute. Uh, so that, so that's great. Uh, and so, yeah, so I feel it. I feel obviously for the teacher, it's we'll we'll still need more information. Uh, I mean, there is, I mean, there is still the pandemic. It still has everything. Uh, it's it's still work in progress. We have some information if there's a lot of contagion or not in schools. I won't go to, I won't go in, into that. But we still need more information to go back to a semi-normal life in terms of schooling. But what I what I worry about is obviously a lot of kids are are left behind in the sense that they either their parents have to go out and they have to do it by themselves and they can't have the parents help helping them at home. Uh, so that, and in a sense, something in that sense, what is a huge factor for social mobility is family structure. So besides just parent going to work, some parents, some kids don't have both of their parents at home either. So that, so at least our, me and my wife, we have like two bodies helping two bodies. In some cases, right. it could be single moms or a single dad helping just two kids at a time or, or having to do other stuff. So it's definitely the family structure component of that is complicated. And some parents who are not able to help their kids that much, even if they're at home for, for whatever reason. So, um, and so being able to have the kids in, in school, some uh, has helped people from low, from lower income, uh, households that, uh, might have less education. They're not, uh, on top of their kids as much, or they're not or just in general, lower income or middle income, whatever it is that they're not yeah. uh, engaging with their kids properly. And we have a, a study a few, a couple of weeks ago by Jim Heckman in the importance of, of parental engagement for developing skills. Um, right. And he, he doesn't go into the K-12 aspect of it, of parents helping their, their kids in during school, but it's just having engaged parents at home helps kids from early childhood, from zero to three to five, and even later, but the, that engagement at home matters a lot. So in this pandemic, throwing everyone back, having to do online schooling for the most part is just, it's gonna maybe, it's gonna push some kids behind or increase gaps in inequality if you care about, about if gaps in inequality is what some people care about. Uh, A lot of parents are able to help their kids or working from home, others they can. So those are gonna be either the same or maybe improve or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but for some kids, they're gonna be left even further behind. So that creates that gap by not going back to school. And obviously no one, I mean, there's very, very tough to control, to control all that and all the variables with, with the pandemic. But that's yeah. an issue that I think we need to I, I think about more. And a lot of people have written about it, how that, how the pandemic in online schooling can yeah. keep some people behind. Uh, but if you wanted, if you want to talk about, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but in terms of higher education as well, in that piece, 
I want to offer kind of an optimistic take on this and let me know what you think. So I, I definitely, I don't want to belittle or, um, you know, try to compartmentalize a lot of these very real struggles that especially lower income people who, uh, generally speaking, aren't able to work from home. Uh, obviously this is a huge, it's a huge disruption to try to, you know, figure out how to do childcare and that kind of stuff. And so I don't want to, I don't want to minimize that, but at the same time, I almost think of this a little bit like, it's sort of, this is the step back that we need to take so that we can take two steps forward afterwards. Cause I think part of the, and you know, there was that, I think it was the New York Magazine, Jonathan Chait, that's the article I, I had sent about this. Um, he had a line in there where he basically said that, you know, a huge majority of K-12 education has been de facto privatized all of a sudden. Uh, and so I think that does have implications for inequality and, and other, you know, it's, it's obviously some parents have the resources, both time and money to make it work and some don't, but wouldn't it be a good thing for a lot? Of, like, I think a lot of parents are discovering just what their kids are learning. Uh, and they're, and they're sort of for the first time, maybe. Um, and I think that there is a lot, there's a big push now because there's so many alternatives, online school, learning pods or whatever, I think there's a big push now uh, to allow parents to have more control over the education dollars for their kids. Um, whereas, you know, we've always had sort of this school choice movement and competition, uh, but it, it is, it, you know, it, had, it had been making progress, but now we have this external event, the pandemic that has really kicked all of that into high gear. You know, and so I guess that's what I mean of like, you know, we're kind of getting to a place where maybe we can take two steps forward and be, you know, in a year from now, we can be in a better place uh, because parents will be much more informed about what what the learning actually look like, looks like for the kids. Um, but also, you know, a lot of jurisdictions, I think, might respond to this parental desire for more control over their kids' education dollars and give parents more flexibility going forward. I mean, do you think that's too optimistic or, and I, I guess I should say I'm taking sort of as a given that it's good if parents have more flexibility um, to, to do what they will with those education dollars. And, and it's good. It's a good thing that there's more competition among, uh, uh, you know, K-12 education. So do you think I'm being too optimistic uh, about that? Do you think things are just going to go back to normal or do you think that, Maybe I'm I'm right, and we kind of have an opportunity to really improve the way we do education. It definitely is optimistic, and I and I agree with you, and and share that it that it's very important to give that flexibility. Well, that, that we're now experimenting and seeing what could work better. So I'm hoping that that's sort of the final outcome, and I, I'm I'm I want to be as optimistic as you, so so we can be <laughs> optimistic <laughs> in, in, in that sense and hope for the best. I can't I I don't have any way to predict how. How would that work? Uh, parents will, will, what do they end up deciding later? And at the end of the day, it has to be sort of a, a policy or yeah, we'll have to be something before parents are able to have the flexibility and it could sort of could spark a movement in that sense, but that needs to happen first before we can say, oh, okay, yeah, it's, it's happening. So we'll see what happens afterwards. And if that desire sort of wanes after things are coming back to normal, I would hope not. I think that that's, that's, yeah. you, that's that's key that we need to give that that choice and that flexibility and that um, and I think people um, on the bottom of the income ladder w would benefit more from that flexibility and choice yeah, I, so for sure. I think so I, in, in my sense, I'm optimistic. Well, I'm I'm optimistic in in, in a different in a different way, um, which is related to what I mentioned a little bit before. So first of all, obviously, there are definitely a lot of lot of bad side, bad sides to this pandemic, bad issues that have happened. But one of the main things that I've appreciated, and I think a lot of parents as well, is to spend more time with their kids as well. Because we used to go to work nine to five or whatever your work schedule was. The kids were in school. You can't spend too much time with them. It is very stressful to help them with online schooling and they're not focused and a lot of different issues that every parent might, would identify. But it's more family time and that's great. A yeah. lot of parents didn't have that before. So that's a, that's what I'm thinking that they would appreciate that more that we can, like, even if they go back to school later, that they're going to have more sort of family board game nights or, or more movie nights or whatever it is. And they feel more, uh, they feel more connected with their kids or, 
they're yeah and they know about both both about what they're learning but also what sometimes what their interests are in some cases not maybe not thinking about by my experience but in some cases if there is middle school or high school my kids are still too small so they're not as disconnected as maybe someone a kid from middle or high school but that's stepping back it's i think a good thing for families as well but i'm but the other thing is that i'm optimistic in the sense that people would realize the importance of parental engagement which is what uh jim heckman was you saying mean in, more in, than they would have if we didn't if they weren't thrust into this situation exactly more than okay. they would have they've seen that and they've and and they've seen how they can help their kids more and like they're, they're thrust into it but i think that they will they will families will come out looking at the bright side and and the other day we can have that flexibility but parents uh need to be more engaged and education doesn't happen at all only in school and the idea of jim's paper was developing skills either hard skills or or, or soft skills uh the idea is that that's skills are different than just education and they're and the role for family and parental engagement is huge in helping kids develop those skills so I think stepping back, parents might realize that that their role that they play, either if they don't know it already, and a lot of them might know it already, or, or try to proactively uh, embrace that and have more parental engagement and reading to their kids and spending more time with their kids and developing those skills. But it just might help people reinforce that, or some of them realize, oh, it's interesting or whatever. So right. I think. It, they will help in, in that sense, or it should help in, in that sense. Yeah, to realize more that good. they're more, re, they should be more responsible for the skills development in their in uh, for their kids. That yeah. it's it's not a, a, a that we shouldn't just think about. Okay, well, we drop the kids uh, from I don't know nine to three thirty or four in a school, depending on elementary, middle, whatever it is. Uh, they would drop them there, and we expect that they would get all the education there. And then we come back home, we talk about them. If, even if we engage, we're uh, we might be either already distracted or just not talking enough about school or not talking about or not sort of reinforcing things that they're learning at school. Now we're sort of thrust into it, but I think that could be something very good. And, and yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, good. I think, yeah, I think that's that's another aspect of it that I hadn't even I haven't even really thought about. And uh, mm -hmm. I guess the last thing I'll say on this is I think there are some states that have programs like education savings accounts or different yeah. type scholarship mm -hmm. programs that they those programs already exist in these states mm -hmm. and i think that this situation has really spurred a lot of people who never really thought about using them or, oh, yeah. or even looking into that to really take a closer look at that and really think like oh well maybe maybe i should you know use that or do something different so yeah no for sure that in that case is it's huge and in, in that sense uh or states to explore that if they don't right. have those right and that's what giving some states more flexibility that how do we how do we move that and sort of try to implement that in, in other states that don't have it now so that's yeah. definitely great that's good we should aim for that yeah so it sort of does be before you you escape my sort of my question about higher education or okay. just the, <laughs> that impact what so your piece uh, that we can link to it later was uh was talking about the the, the impact of COVID 19 on higher education other opportunities and challenges and you mentioned that the cost has gone up, gone up there there's grade inflation degree inflation i was wondering if you can talk uh, more about that and how has that been exacerbated by the pandemic? Yeah, in one sense, or what, it, what could be the opportunity there to sort of talk about more about those issues and try to fix them? Yeah, I'm 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 happy to. I mean, this is you know if we if we have the opportunity and the privilege to keep doing these these different podcasts and these different discussions, it's, this is going to become like a hobby horse of mine. But I really have a dim view on American higher education the way it. It currently is, uh, as you well know, but and so I kind of go into this piece for the Foundation for Economic Education. But basically, the point the point of it was saying that you know we we're kind of stuck in this loop where everyone sort of knows that higher education is not really equipping kids or, or not even kids like adults, so that not even equipping people that go there with the skills they need to succeed. It's really more of like a rubber stamp uh you know mm -hmm. on you um which is something that brian kaplan uh wrote about in his book the case against higher education i thought that was a or i guess it's the case against education um but uh, i thought that was a really persuasive argument that he was making um and so you know there's a lot of evidence that people are not learning uh in these institutions of higher education great inflation is rampant you know a 
and A is the most common grade given now uh, to students um, mm. in, in all of higher education. So I get into some of that. So we know the students aren't learning. Uh, and yet at the same time, there still is a significant wage premium for going to higher education. Or I guess maybe the way I'd phrase it is there's a wage penalty for not going. Uh, and that's that's still very real. And so we still have uh, this phenomena of credential inflation where you have uh, jobs, job openings that, you know, 15, 20, 30 years ago did not require a higher education degree or bachelor's degree or master's degree or whatever. And today they are required. So even just to get an interview, you have to have that credential to sort of mm -hmm. open the door for you. Um, and it's so in the, in one sense, we still sort of need to go to higher education if you want those opportunities to be available to you. But at the same time, you also kind of understand that it's a farce, like you're not really learning anything. I guess you could if you tried, but it's not it's not something that, you know, every graduate is uh, is equipped with these like, you know, skills that make them better in the labor market than someone who didn't go. Uh, so we're sort of in this cycle. And uh, I, was, I was pointing out that, you know, with COVID-19, a lot of schools are transitioning to uh, online education, but they haven't, I mean, some of them have, but a lot of them have not significantly decreased tuition. Uh, and so I think a lot of people are deciding, you know, I, I could watch a YouTube video for free. I don't, I don't need to spend, you know, thousands of dollars to be on Zoom calls all day. Uh, and so I think there's a, and, and rack up the debt that's associated with that. And so I think there's a real opportunity for, you know, maybe as people decide not to go into these traditional higher education institutions and colleges and universities, if there's fewer people deciding that that's how they're going to go, I think that could put pressure on employers to say like, we're not going to require those degrees. So, you know, Google, for instance, has recently dropped their degree requirements for some of their hiring. Uh, I think there's a few other tech companies that have followed suit. I'd like to see that more broadly. And I think that maybe COVID-19 could be sort of the catalyst to sort of get this ball rolling. Um, but, you know, it, it just depends. It depends on it's higher education is just so entrenched. You know, we spend so much money subsidizing it. Um, you know, we'll, we'll have to see how it goes. But I, I do see a glimmer of hope there that maybe a big disruption like this could kind of fundamentally change the way we think about it and the way that we uh, that we do things there. So, but yeah, anyone who's interested, I'll make sure to, to include that link as well. But um, shifting gears uh, away from education a little bit, even though I think so, we've mm -hmm. outlined some reasons for optimism. Um, one of the other things that you wanted to mention was sort of these, when we're thinking about economic mobility and what it what it really um, requires for someone to be able to move up the income ladder, specifically across generations, but really just in general, um, are these structural factors, right? And so can mm -hmm. you explain a little bit of like what you mean by structural factors and why you think we don't focus on them enough? Yeah, so that's the distinction. I mean, we're structural factors, I mean, and, and issues are present in other areas of, of, of research and inquiry, and I think uh sort of it, it it's well it's well known or well studied in some other areas but when it comes to income mobility first that there's a problem i think that that, that it's being intertwined too much with poverty and inequality so it's just discussed in terms of or, or it's too related to that one and those are three different uh three different issues right so uh there's a there's a problem there that we need to distinguish uh those things but when it comes to the specific question about how can we uh, improve uh, income mobility. First, there is a focus on, on on education, and we just discuss some of the issues there uh, instead of maybe more broadly talking about skills. Um, mm -hmm. And there is and there is a focus mostly on welfare. What's the what sort of best welfare plan that we can provide people to or families to climb out of the income ladder? And those issues are are important. I don't have a specific problem with that. But those are issues more related to poverty. With income mobility, it's more encompassing. We need to uh, think about uh, a broader array of, of things. And uh, even though em even though employment and labor markets are 
or there is some focus on that, it's not it's it's not the main conversation when it should be because the main the main vehicle to climb the income ladder is a job. So the education and skills development is how do we are we preparing people to enter the labor market? But then when they come to the labor market, there needs to be a functional uh, market where full of opportunities for people to pursue different careers and different opportunities. So, um, so we need to focus on that. In terms of job creation and entrepreneurship, uh, business dynamism, I think, is an issue that hasn't been discussed a lot when it comes to income mobility. So in that sense, sort of going back to the structural problem of are there enough jobs being created or there's enough business dynamism, which means if there's enough, if there's uh, the, the economy in the labor market itself is dynamic, if there's more jobs and startups and new businesses being created than that than are dying off, and the level of, of dynamism uh, before in the 1970s, there was a higher level of uh, big new businesses being created. There was a bigger proportion of total businesses being new businesses. It was about 16%. And recently, and since the 1970s, it's been going down, and it was more about 8 to 10%. When the rate of uh, startups that have been dying have been around the same, around 10%, 8 to 10%. So that uh, hasn't, hasn't been impacted too much. But the rate of job of entrepreneurship, business dynamism, has been declining. So why are we not focusing on some of those issues, and we're just focusing on how to uh, to fo to sort of figure out what specific, how do we improve a specific welfare plan instead of uh, going deep down in terms of what's restraining business dynamism and job creation and entrepreneurship, which is like a bigger structural, a bigger structural problem. Is that what you mean when you say structural factor? Uh, is sort of like a climate of business dynamism. Is that kind of what well, you mean? It's it's part of it, but something it's sort of the idea is going just going down to the root causes of what is creating this. So some of the issues that we see are or we discuss about in this literature are mostly maybe sometimes symptoms or a result of something that is that that is affected, but it's not the uh, but it's not the root cause. So in going deep into at least and I used business dynamism and entrepreneurship as one example. But in terms of that, it's like, how do we go and explain and sort of figure out what is, what is happening with business dynamics? And that's going down to that. In terms of, let's say, another factors in terms of institutions or rule of law, sort of that, that's, a, that's a big issue that we, that we don't discuss it a lot. Countries that have more income mobility or, and less inequality even have better institutions, uh, have, um, have less corruption. And those are issues that we may maybe not see too much in developed countries. Uh, but those are issues that are important. So, uh, so if we're talking about uh, justice and, and accessing the justice system, uh, it's very costly here in the United States. That's one of the issues that that, that sort of rule of law index, uh, the rule of law index, sort of goes into and sort of points to the biggest problem, one of the biggest problems in the United States. So that's one issue. Uh, so it's not exactly related right now to to the mobility conversation in any significant way, but that's overall those institutions and rule of law matters, and that's sort of a structural problem. And so, mostly in developing countries, we might we might study it more, but just more broadly, the mobility conversation needs to have uh, more more discussion of more of those issues. And let's say like we're talking about I think this morning another conversation about something else about the uh, success sequence. The success sequence says that if you're if you first uh, study. Uh, then get a job and and marry and then have kids that the probability of of having of being in poverty is reduced by a lot so a lot of studies by brookings uh, ai and others and other great researchers point to that fact but it's if we dig deep what's the structural issue there why is that happening it might be other reasons that are affecting that outcome so it might be that the people that are successful in doing that and going to a success sequence have either personal characteristics or are, have done things in a certain way that that explains more of that outcome than just the end result of that they're not poor because they follow these steps. It's sort of taking a step back, looking at root causes and, right. and bigger structural issues that could be related in this case to character, character, sorry, culture and other things that are not discussed within this conversation or they might be too taboo to discuss. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely... Um... You know, as we've been working on a lot of these topics the past few years, there's definitely a sense that some of these issues are very taboo to discuss, um, which mm -hmm. is, I think, I think too bad uh, because I think a lot of it, you know, as a lot of the people that we work with and and even you yourself, you know, are more uh, economics focused, and we're we're very focused on yeah. on you know 
show me the numbers and the, the uh, econometrics <laughs> yeah. and stuff. And, I, you know, I, that's good. That's, you know, we want to be informed. We want to have evidence. Um, but it does miss a lot, <laughs> I think, um, you know, in yeah. terms of, you know, I think we're more recently, I guess, you know, I guess you could see, um, you know, sparks of this in, in the literature for the last, you know, 30, 40 years even, but maybe more so uh, now there is um, mm -hmm. a push to really focus on things like social capital. Uh, you know, how many connections do you have? How many people do you know? What's that, that one phrase where it's like, it's social capital is, you know, how many people do you have that you could call at three in the morning if you're in jail or something mm -hmm. like that? Um, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, do you have someone that can watch the kids if there's some emergency that pops up or, you know, something like that. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's a bit harder to quantify, although there have been a lot of, uh, there have been some attempts mm -hmm. to do so. Um, but you know, this, this is sort of tied up in the decline of religion and religious institu institutions more generally. Uh, although there have been some exceptions, you know, for instance, um, there was some, some great work from uh, Megan McArdle a few years ago, looking at economic mobility across the United States. And I think to no one's real surprise, probably the best uh, county or city or however she was uh, measuring it for economic mobility of specifically people who are born into the bottom quintile of the income ladder and aren't able to get out of that was in Utah and in mm -hmm. specifically in Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, and so that obviously that stuff has a lot to, uh, to do with, with these issues. And so I think that, you know, it's, it's always good to make that case. You know, this is this is sort of the two sides of the coin here where we're, we're thinking mm -hmm. about, um, you know, how what it, what are the ingredients that in, enable someone to to climb the income ladder? Um, and mm -hmm. so I think that's that's just we need to focus on that stuff more. And just because it's not tangible in a way that some other yeah. statistics are, it's yeah, you no, can't and that's since you're yeah, and you're right. And that's since maybe we can go into uh, the other topic I wanted to ask you because our mission is lifting barriers to human flourishing. And in yep. those barriers, we can discuss uh, more artificial barriers that might be some of those structural issues that I was discussing that might be solved by some sort of policy lever or policy idea, but that there are other uh, bar other type of barriers that are more natural, that, that, we, that we call them <laughs> natural barriers that are more personal in nature, more cultural, that are more, more related to social capital and other issues that more people have been have been studying lately, and I think in the work of some others like Lynn Larry or Stephen Dorloff or others, uh, I've talked about social capital capital in in this conversation. But uh, sort of, I think well, that's what I wanted you sort of to 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 address to talk about what how do we make that sort of the distinction between what types of barriers and in what cases we could have good economic models, policy ideas, but that we won't get anything close to a solution if we don't, uh, if we don't sort of work on other types of barriers that might not be, that are addressed by other independent sort of sector, nonprofits sort or of on the ground, direct services, working on helping people on those issues, but sort of, sort of stepping back, what are, how, how is that distinction that we like to make and that you had a great article about that hopefully we can link later in the, uh, yeah. Um, in the podcast page. Yeah, I'll put I'll put a link to it. And um, so what you're discussing is, um, I think the terms I use are artificial and natural barriers, but I've heard some people use external and internal, like there are, are a few other ways that you could kind of think about it. But basically, it's, you know, there are some barriers that are imposed from the outside, right? So for instance, we know that excessive occupational licensing regulations hold back job creation, they hold back employment growth. Um, you know, we have lots of evidence to that effect. Occupational licensing regulations are an externally imposed barrier that is usually imposed on the state level. It's a state government issue. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's and that's something we should address and we should really be serious about, um, you know, removing those uh, whenever we can and whenever it makes sense to. Uh, but then there are the natural barriers, which are not imposed from a government or a state level thing, but it's just, you know, a kid growing up in a situation where they don't have a lot of parental engagement, or mm. for instance, maybe they've, maybe it's a person who ha has had bouts of drug addiction or homelessness or something like that. Like that's, mm. that's not necessarily something that has been imposed on them from the outside. 
it's yeah. it's really sort of something that's that's more internal and and actually personal, right? So the yeah. external barriers, the artificial barriers, sort of blanket. Like you can kind of see, like occupational licensing requirements are for everyone, but these natural barriers are. It's hard to generalize because everyone has their own, uh, which mm-hmm. is which is part of the reason that, you know, I think when we're thinking about tools to remove these, the government side really should focus on the artificial barriers. That's very much within their wheelhouse. Often they are created by government unintentionally, but on the natural side, because they're so unique and they're so specific and personal, the government is just not a very useful tool for addressing them well. So there are some programs that do better than others and we should, you know, we should look at that and keep those in mind. But nine times out of 10, you know, what, what, it, what it really comes down to is a person overcoming something in their own life. Yeah. And I would say, you know, you could even wrap that into the situation of like, they need to build that human capital in themselves mm-hmm. and build those skills, yeah. develop those skills so that when they're able to go into the labor market, they are actually equipped to succeed there rather than, uh, you know, flail or, or, or get fired or, you know, not have the, uh, the appropriate habits to, to make them successful. And so I think looking at it in those, from those two different directions is really important. And, uh, and so that's why I think there's, you know, there is a role for government to play in, in, uh, you know, especially poverty alleviation, but even I would say in, um, certain ways for, for, uh, boosting income mobility, but a lot of the really intractable problems are things like addiction, mental illness, uh, you know, other things that are very personal that just aren't going to aren't going to be very effective uh, if if you're working within sort of a a top down type program. And so, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I think that in some ways those can often be um, actively harmful. And uh, in, in there's there's a lot of evidence uh, about that as well. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of it's, it's hard to quantify, but, uh, it's really, I think it's important Mm -hmm. to kind of keep in mind both sides of that coin. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that's really important. Yeah. In that sense, like discussions that we've had on soft skills and the role of soft skills for, for all of this, that you don't develop that through, (laughs) through a policy necessarily, you develop it in, uh, with your interaction with other people, develop it in in the household. So those are things that, that we can't really like apply any sort of top down solution to, but at the end of the day, it's not something that you also, even though it's personal, you can have sort of people helping you, which is the sense of, which is what sort of thing surrounds a discussion on social capital as well, that you have circles of friends, circles of other people, even including your family, if you have a good family structure as well in some sense, but just even if you don't outside of that, that it's not that necessarily that we want to say it's personal, so no one can help you or you can't, yeah. or you just have to figure it out by yourself. It's just like, no, I mean, there's things that, that 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 a lot of people can can help you in some sense if you seek seek and search for that help. At the end of the day, you need to have the the, the, the personal agency to overcome whatever problem you, you have. But uh, but it also can be through uh, increased social capital and communities that can, that can make that sort of uh, path to to more personal agency and overcoming personal or uh, yeah. personal barriers easier. No, that's a that's a really good point. Personal, personal does not mean individual as in like you have to get over it yourself or, you know, pull yourself by, by the bootstraps or something. But it is meant to say uh, that a lot of these um, blanket programs are, are going to be less helpful than a one on one or or involvement in an actual community. Uh, because, you know, when you have a personal relationship, whether it's with in some certain individuals or you're part of a community group, whether it's religious or just like a local area or neighborhood or, or whatever it might be, you know, people know you, you know them, there's a sense of reciprocal responsibility. Um, it's it's much more empowering rather than kind of getting sort of a, a, a faceless, um, you know, check in the mail or, or whatever it might be. And I'm not saying that there's no role for that. I'm just saying that there's a lot that those programs can't do, uh, that, that communities can. Yeah, yeah, in, in that sense, it relates to the other aspect also of, of entrepreneurship and work and, and, and work and opportunities on the work 
side because sometimes you also find uh, uh, help yeah. within your workplace or you find sort of that personal meaning in the workplace and through a job. So that's why it's not that the barriers are yes. separate. There's always interacting. But the idea is that there's some of them that, you know, we might have a blanket big approach or like we can sort of pursue a certain policy, but some of them are personal and a lot of them are sort of addressed or, or, or sort of uh, people get help on some of these issues by independent sector organizations uh, on the ground that are working on different issues, whether it is mental illness, drug addiction, or, or, other, or other issues. We need to sort of have uh, a broader view as economists in particular, maybe, but the society as a whole, that how, how all of these things interact and how uh, we need to have its own, uh, we, think, well, we, need, we need to have different approaches and different players helping at the same time. And uh, and there's a lot of independent sector organizations that don't get maybe the, uh, the, 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 the the credit they deserve for helping in some of those more personal situations, even if it's related to the family structure situation, helping single mothers or anything thing like that, that are more that it's not only about giving sort of a, a, a welfare check or giving something material, but also helping people through some of their worst moments. So it's a it's a. We need to think about that the whole point of it is to think about barriers in those different uh, those different variants to have a, a, a broader set of um, potential yeah. ways to help people. Um, but in in that sense, also there is the issue of personal agency, and I wanna wanna know if I want sort of taking away the <laughs> the moderators of mantle from you for a second, sort of push push that question on you on that topic because you've written lately about <laughs> about agency and the importance of personal agency for social mobility, for uh, sort of society as a whole, and and what are, and how is that agency is impacted, and maybe if you can define it first a little bit of what we mean by that, and sort of how it's helpful for individuals, how, 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 how the cultural attitudes toward agency in a society yeah. might affect that as well. So if you can go in, into that, it would be, be great, because there's great work on that, that's that uh, we've worked with Glenn. Uh, well, Glenn Larry has talked about it a little bit. We have hopefully something upcoming with him as well. But uh, our senior research fellow, uh, uh, yeah, you can talk more about him, uh, about his work, uh, Clay Rutledge, and then with Ian Rowe recently from the, from AEI had a great report on that as well. So I don't know if you can talk more about those issues. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So they uh, we'll link um, we'll link to all this stuff too, so you can kind of check it out. But basically, the idea is, uh, you know, I define agency yeah. the way that I like I like Clay Rutledge's uh, definition. Our colleague, uh, who is a uh, professor of management at North Dakota State University, but he's also uh, kind of an expert in existential psychology, and he's done a lot of work on meaning uh, and how meaning uh, interacts with people's lives, and and recently he's been sort of looking at how meaning can be motivational in addition to uh, being sort of an outcome type measure. Mm -hmm. uh, but basically it's, it's a personal belief uh, agency that is. agency is a belief that uh, someone can seek and achieve and participate in uh, a meaningful life. Right. And so it's sort of like my, my choices and my decisions matter uh, is really the core of it. Uh, and so like you were referencing, you know, Ian Rowe is uh, an American Enterprise Institute scholar, but also an educational entrepreneur. He ran a bunch of uh, private schools and he's kind of a long career in some of this stuff. And he, what, what really got me thinking about this was his um, recent report uh, that came out just a few weeks ago from uh, the American Enterprise Institute talking about how it's important to incentivize individual agency uh, to empower people to move up the income ladder, uh, which I think is so important because there are so many there's a lot of voices out there who are saying, you know, you can't, um, that, you know, because of, I mean, the most often one that we see is, you know, the United States is a structurally racist country. And so therefore these gaps between, uh, the achievement of, of blacks and whites are insurmountable. And basically because of your identity, you are doomed to failure. Uh, and so I think the corollary to that, that they never really say explicitly is, so then why even try? And so Ian really took umbrage at that and, and really pushed back on it and, and sort of identify several ways of which, yeah, it is true. Like, so for instance, someone that follows this success sequence, which is basically, you know, graduate high school, get a job and start working, make sure that you get married before you have kids. 
if you follow that sequence, like it's almost what, you know, 98% of people that follow that sequence are never going to be in poverty, um, which is, you know, maybe it's a little intuitive for, for some people, but I think, you know, it's a message that says what you choose to do with your life and how you choose to structure your life really matters. Uh, and so it's not, yeah. it's sort of putting that control back in the person. It's putting it back on the individual, uh, which I think is absolutely key. Uh, and so, mm -hmm. you know, to get to your point, the, um, the piece that you're referencing that I wrote was basically making the argument that, you know, if you, if you're out there, if, if from the heights of our culture, you know, there are newspaper record with the New York Times or, you know, a lot of other institutions that work on these issues are spending so much of their time saying you can't, you'll never succeed. Um, you know, these, these racist institutions yeah. are such that you have no room to maneuver in them. You know, no matter what personal choice you make, you will never be able to succeed. Um, that, that really, you know, don't be surprised if people take you seriously. You know, and if, and if someone really did take that seriously, if they really believed that, then they wouldn't. That why would you try? I mean, I if I really believed that, I wouldn't try. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, hear that and and that really saps out, you know, their ability, their willingness to work hard and to overcome the obstacles. And for sure, there are obstacles. Uh, and but when you're saying that you can never overcome them, if someone believes that and they don't try, it becomes sort of this self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, so it's because I didn't succeed because yeah. I didn't try. And I didn't try because I knew I couldn't succeed. And so it's just like, well, you know, you're you're sort of you're you're assuming the conclusion already before you've even embarked on this. So I think Yeah, and related to that sort of if if what you're worried about in that sense it's that gap between either black and white or poor and rich and, and whatever, however you want to do to or whatever gap you want to highlight. If, if you're saying that you, you can't do it, I mean, personal agency is very intrinsic to, to every person, Cult, culture and things around you can definitely influence it. So definitely how you talk about it is important. Uh, but it's still intrinsic and some people will still have that regardless if you mm -hmm. tell them that, so they'll be okay. But if you're worried about the person in the bottom of the income ladder, and and you want them to and you want that gap to be reduced there is some things that you can definitely do in terms of policy or 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 taking out barriers that are very artificial in nature jim crow laws and whatever it is you want to you want you want to focus on uh so you can do that and obviously we don't have some of those laws now but whatever it is yeah we can take those things out but then at the end of the day it's that person that yeah. needs to climb up that we were talking about before some of those things uh, about some of those issues so if you say that it's not possible while a lot of people who have are saying that it's not possible yeah. are actually on the top of that income ladder and have achieved a lot of success which is uh very ironic but um or troublesome in that sense that you were able to achieve it but you say that others that they, they can't um but at the end of the day the person has personal agency won't listen to that message it's still gonna fight it's still gonna think like what you said that they are in control of their own lives take the right choices uh or, or be responsible for bad choices and they're gonna be okay if the person that you're telling that it's not gonna work and they're in the bottom and they're not even gonna try the problem that you're trying to address that gap in that uh, in, in unequal outcomes it's gonna be even worse because the person who has it is going to continue or at least they're not going to fall behind because even if they're not moving forward they're at least they're at least staying put because they're still trying to overcome whatever barrier it is and they're going to be okay in some sense no but that that person at the bottom if they hear that message that it's not possible they can't change anything why would you even try um so it's th that gap is just going to be bigger and bigger so you're by trying to hide or being worried about a problem you're trying to say that one of the more important solutions or structural things that you can focus on, which is personal agency. You're, you're not giving it a, it's due in this holistic conversation. You're going to create, you're going to, you're going to make the yeah. problem worse. Yeah. The one that you're trying to address. No, I, I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. I think it's, um, said, but. it's a, it's a big problem. And, um, you know, I, it's, again, it's, it's, you can't really measure how cultural messages are affecting people's beliefs. And then how those beliefs then in 
turn affect mm -hmm. their behavior and their decisions. So this is all a bit abstract in a, in a sense that you can't quite draw a, a statistical measurement across these things. But I think that it's pretty it's pretty intuitive. Like, I mean, you wouldn't go to your kids and say, like, you know, you're never going to succeed. So I don't know what you're doing, you know, trying to yeah. trying to learn or something like that, you know. And so, like, you know, obviously, some yeah. people are going to disregard that to their benefit, but some people um, that might it might it could affect, yeah. I think, uh, what their what their uh, actions are, especially if they're hearing that from a person or an institution that they really trust. Just to sort of bring it back to the beginning conversation, that it is difficult to measure some of these cultural attitude, and that's what we were trying to do in a way with that American Dream sort of survey survey in our focus. Uh, but that's certainly like one aspect of it that we can't, that it's difficult to measure it, but it, and, but it's also important to be positive about the prospect, at least in this case, and agency and American dream, I think are very much, oh, uh, yeah. I mean, they're very much related, but, uh, in that sense, if the American dream, as I try to say at the beginning is, is more about a vision statement, I think for the United States, it's a promise. It, it's a promise that, that, that you can pursue human flourishing and happiness it's not a given so even though there are a lot of obstacles even though not a lot of people have achieved it yet that prospect that uh of yes you can do it or you, you can strive for something bigger to live better richer or fuller lives that needs to be uh i mean that needs to and the cultural narrative that needs to be uh discussing in i don't know, trying to discuss in positive terms and highlighted because even though not a lot of people are going to achieve it now the country itself and that vision statement of the united states the american dream has gotten better in time and will continue to get better despite whatever barriers there's there are still there for people to achieve it so it's just that the narrative around it about, around that ethos of the american dream needs to be uh needs to be uh, uh sort of sort of pushed forth in or despite any obstacles and, and, and rekindled in a way that people, if it's self-fulfilling also in the bad sense and self-fulfilling also in a good sense, that even if we're not, not a lot of people can pursue it or achieve it now, that in the future they might. So that relates to the discussion that we had at the beginning about opportunities, American, the American dream yep. itself and all that. So I just wanted to highlight how that relates, how agency in the American dream for sure relate. And that's what I'm sort of pursuing my own personal agency, trying to think that I can found and open and run a think tank, uh, trying to rekindle the American dream, uh, being my American dream, trying to think that I, I'll, I'll be successful in yeah. doing it. And well, so we'll so see. far, so good. We'll and uh... <laughs> well, It's still <laughs> work right. in progress well, as well. Thanks uh, yeah. for closing us out, bringing it back to the beginning. Um, if for anyone out there, please, you know, like, subscribe, leave us a comment, shoot us an email, let us know what you thought. Let us know, you know, what kind of directions that you'd like some of this, these conversations to go in. Um, as Gonzalo mentioned, we'll have a lot of different guests, a lot of different um, interviews talking about different studies or, or different, um, you know, conclusions that people come to out there. So just let us know what you think and, and we'll hope to see you again next time.